If you've ever been involved in coaching kids or teaching them how to play an instrument, you know how important it is to get the basics down, right? So, like, if you're teaching them baseball, you know, it's batting and catching, and there's throwing and tackling if it's football, or how to shoot and how to dribble if it's basketball. If you're teaching them a musical instrument, it's like how to read the notes and where to put your hand and and your fingers. And you always go back to the basics. And, you know, when you're working with youngsters, at, at first it's a little rough. And until they get the basics down, it's, it's kind of crazy. I mean, we don't get a lot of productivity. And even when you do get the basics down, if you're an advanced athlete or a very accomplished musician, you still always go back to the basics. And just like there are basics to sports and music, there are basics to a worshipful life. And, you know, it's pretty apparent when, like, a a kid doesn't really know the basics of the sport, okay? It can be even humorous. But it's not so humorous if you're a believer in God. You're a Christian. And you don't actually know what the basics are, or you've really never developed them. And that's why what we're going to look at today in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is so critically important. It's as if, as we're reading Solomon's journal, he literally strips off all the veneer of superficial spirituality and what he's doing us is showing us what a true vertical perspective looks like what does it look like to really know god and to worship him now as we've been going through this book in ecclesiastes chapter four we spent a couple weeks on it we looked at some god-centered values that really bring meaning to life we looked at uh, finding contentment and community and the continual growth and wisdom you find those in chapter four But you need to know that those values are sourced in a relationship with the living God. A relationship that is one that could be categorized as worshipful. And so this morning, I'd like to take a look at what are the basics of a worshipful life. Let's take a look at the very first one. You're going to find it, chapter 5, verse 1. And that is to treat God and his word with respect. Look what he says. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Perhaps Solomon uh, had made observations of the worshipers that came to the temple. In fact, he oversaw the construction of the temple and perhaps he saw them and they'd come and they're singing their songs and they offered sacrifices, made vows, but Maybe he saw that they really—they weren't really changed by these experiences. They lacked sincerity and depth. They perhaps were just kind of going through the motions, singing the songs, but it was devoid of meaning. It's very possible when you look at Solomon's history and his own personal life, he knew what it's like to just go through the motions. You know how it is. Maybe uh, even like today, we're at a, a worship service. And we sing songs to worship for the Lord, but your heart really isn't in it. You, on occasion, mumble through some of the words, but the idea of expressing devotion and love for God, that the truths that we're singing in these songs and these hymns, that, that wasn't anything that was really resonating with you. In fact, you hadn't really meant it. You need to understand that he's addressing that very issue. You need to treat God and his word with respect. And so he says, guard your steps As you go to the house of God, and he's probably referring to the the temple as these worshipers came. And he's saying, listen, you need to understand something. When you come 
to worship God, you do it with reverence and respect. You need to guard your steps. We would maybe say it this way. Hey, watch your step. You've heard that. Like maybe you're on the bus and you're getting off and the bus driver says, hey, watch your step when you're going out. What does that mean? Be careful. You don't want to fall down. Or you know how like when you're on an airplane and you fly and you land and and there's this nice stewardess and she's at the plane there and, and you've trashed the plane. You know what I'm saying? You and your kid and you have crackers everywhere and shredded napkins. You made a huge mess. And yet, uh, despite the fact that they have to clean that plane, there they are. They're smiling and they're so very nice. And they say, thank you so much for flying with us today. And please be careful and watch your step, right? They don't want you to wipe out when you're leaving the plane. They want you to have a pleasant, pleasant experience even to the very last step. And that's what Solomon is saying. Hey, listen, when it comes to worship, guard your steps. Watch it and even watch out. This seems kind of weird to us. I mean, you know, that makes sense uh, to guard your step, watch out when it comes to issues like temptation, sin, uh, worshiping God with a half heart, unbelief. We get it that there would be warnings for that, but to find a warning when it comes to worship? I mean, a lot of people are like, hey, man, just kind of show up to church trying to get through that there. Sermon gets long, just kind of close your eyes, just kind of nod your head pleasantly, and you'll eventually get out, and you can check the box off that you went in church, and you did that, and you took care of that. What he's saying here is, no, you want to watch your step. You want to guard your step when it comes to worship. Whether it's private worship in just your own personal devotion time, and I I hope you actually have some time you're actually spending with God. Do you know that he's actually called you to himself? He wants you to experience his joy. He wants you to worship him, not just like on Sunday morning, but even as you go through your week, even just 10 minutes, just carve it out, maybe at the beginning of the day, just you and God, no phones, no computers, uh, no reading the box, back of the box of cereal, just you and God and the Bible, praying and delighting in him. And when you come on a Sunday morning to worship, uh, come to do just that, to worship the living God. You know, when we come together, there should be a sense of holiness, of expectation, of reverence, of delight, that we are gathered together to worship the living God. And that's why he says, guard your steps. And notice this. He says, and draw near to listen. Listening in Hebrew always contains the idea that you are actually obeying what you hear. You're not just hearing words like, yeah, I heard some words like kind of background music on the radio while you're driving, but that you're actually engaged, you're listening, you're processing, and you have the heart and the idea that you're going to heed what you hear. And so he says, draw near to listen. God's really not interested in superficial worship. In fact, he calls it uh, the sacrifice of fools. When you go through motions, but you don't mean it, you maybe offer some sacrifice, like, well, you know, I'm going to give this money, or I'll, I'll sacrifice a little my, bit of my time, but your heart is not in it. If you go through motions, or you do actions outside of sincerity, or you really don't intend to obey, that is the sacrifice of fools. In fact, he goes even stronger and says, it's doing evil. God's not really interested in you going through motions. He's interested in your heart and you really learning to love him, 
to know him, to enjoy him, and to obey him. You remember uh, there's a guy by the name of Saul? And, you know, he kind of got off started. He was king of Israel, first king. But, you know, he'd kind of been there, done that. Samuel, by the way, was the prophet, was late for some of these sacrifices. They're about ready to go off to battle. And so what do you do if you're a leader, right? You just take matters into your own hands, or at least that's what Saul thought. And so he goes ahead and does the sacrifices, and, and uh, God informs Samuel of it. Samuel shows up the next day. Samuel actually spent the whole night up in prayer. And he confronts Saul, like, what are you doing? Going through the motions and offering sacrifices and not really meaning it. You can find it in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And in verse 22 in chapter 15, it says this. Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Going through motions, doing actions, God's really interested in your heart. He wants you to know him, trust him, love him. There is a heart relationship that you've got with the living God. And that's why he says, draw near to listen. Not just running off with the mouth. I want you to draw near to hear the word of the Lord. And God has so seen fit that he has actually revealed himself through his word. And if you're going to worship him, you need the word. In fact, the word of God is given to create worshipful lives. Let me give you a text. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. If you want to see how powerful it is, the scripture that God has given us, it says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of both soul and spirit, of both joint and marrow, and it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things have been opened and laid bare to the eyes with whom we have to do. God gives his word. His word is living and active. It literally pierces through all the chaos, the confusion, our rationality, our callous heart, uh, all the fog of life, all of our lame excuses. When God's word is opened, he actually does an incision work on our soul, in our heart, to show us our true motives, To help us see life as it really is. To see him as he is. And God uses his word to start addressing issues. Whether they be forgiveness, lack of sincerity, lack of devotion. uh, Whether it's affirming, you're on the right track. Jesus is being manifested in your life. You're growing in joy. You're finding a delight. You're seeing his promises. You're finding faith. All of this is what God does through his word. And God leads and matures his people by using his scripture. That's why it's written like in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where it says, For all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. God gives his word and he brings transformation through his revelation. That's why if you're going to be a worshiper of God, go back to the basics. Treat God and his word with respect. Come with the anticipation, I am here to hear from the Lord. Give me the grace to respond. That's actually why if you keep going in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, uh, Paul writes this, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and 
of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. What? I want you to do this. I want you to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. If worship is to take place, the word of God is to be opened. It is to be taught. And we want to hear from God. That's why we look at the scriptures. So one of the basics of a worshipful life is to treat God and his word with respect. Let me show you another. Look at verses 2 and 3. Be humble when you pray. He says, do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. So what he's driving at here is when you pray, prayer is just simply talking to God, do so with reverence. Some people get the idea like when he says, you know, well, he's God's in heaven. He's way, way all the way above and he's so far removed from this earth. Actually, it's not talking about distance. It's talking about perspective. God is the almighty. He's the alpha and the omega. He sees the beginning and the end and everything in the present, not just here in this locale, but in all places in the universe. He's mighty. He's holy. He's just. He's gracious. He is the Almighty One. And so when He says, when you pray, you want to do so with humility of heart. It, this is, I don't know what's going on here, but this is so common to like try to like bring God at just kind of like a one step above a human level. Like refer to God as like your buddy or He's the big man upstairs. I want you to know from God's perspective, that's all like super irreverent. He is mighty just powerful he's the creator and sustainer of all things seen and unseen and so he says when you pray don't be hasty or impulsive remember who you're speaking to it's the lord himself and then in verse three this is a pretty difficult verse to kind of interpret let me give you my best shot there's multiple interpretations i think i counted 20 when he says for the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. And I think what he's driving at there is when, when you work and exert yourself, you're a hardworking individual. You've got pressures. You've got stressful situations. You've got a lot of unknowns. When you've got an active mind and you're working hard at night, you know what happens? You have a tendency to start processing those or even try to bring reconciliation and, into some of the issues that you're facing. And so when, you've got a, when you work hard and you've got an active mind, that oftentimes gets carried over to dreams at night. And what he's saying here in verse 3, I believe, is that when you're a fool, you can tell you're a fool when you just run off with lots of words. You approach God with all sorts of irreverence. You're just talking without a lot of meaning. And what he's driving at, I believe, here is you want to be humble when you pray. You want to watch your tone of voice and your approach to the living God. Um, you know, if you've got the idea that you can treat God with disrespect and, and not understand that that is not pleasing to him, you, uh, you've got anger and so you decide that you're just going to voice it to God and you're going to treat God with the disdain that you feel for him, I want you to understand that that is dangerous ground. You know, in our parenting, 
There's three things that we always discipline for in parenting. We always discipline for disobedience, dishonesty, and disrespect. Disobedience, you tell your child what to do. They don't do it. You better love your kid enough to actually address the situation. Same with uh, dishonesty. If they're not telling you the truth, you can't like, oh, whatever. You've got to address the situation, find out what really happened, and, and you need to address it. You need to bring discipline to bear. And same with disrespect. If you're, you have to understand that if you're a parent, God has placed you in a position of authority over that child. If they cannot learn to respect you, to be honest with you, and to obey you, chances are they're not going to learn how to be respectful, honest, and to obey God. Because we are merely authorities that God has placed over their life while we are raising them. We love our kids, we lead them, we pray for them, we invest them, but we intend to launch them into the world fully functional, fully faithful, and we want them to be able to enjoy God and to obey Him and delight in Him. And so we actually take our role seriously. And by the way, when children learn how to obey and to be truthful and to be respectful, do you know that has carryover value for the rest of your life? If you're doing that as a parent, you're setting your kid up for success in life because you're setting them up for success like with their teachers who are going to ask them to do things or their coaches or when they encounter law enforcement or future employers. If they can't learn to be respectful, honest, and obedient in your home, I want you to know you are setting them up for some huge reality issues. What's going to happen? It's going to be painful for you to watch, and it is going to be really painful for them to live through it. And all you have to do as a parent, if you have totally stepped away from your parenting responsibilities, and you're just letting it slide, and you're hoping the teacher or the coach is going to deal with it, get ready. One day you'll have to look in the mirror and say, you know what, I guess I I didn't take God all that seriously on things that were extremely important. And I bring this up because this disrespect issue, if your kids don't learn to respect you, and that means you, you need to act and behave respectably, okay? But that can get carried over with God. And what happens is, is that they just start treating God with all sorts of disrespect. And it doesn't seem to matter because it never really mattered to mom and dad. So you, will, you ever had your parents say this? Hey, you watch your tone of voice. Any of that ever happened to you? Okay, I can tell. Yes, some of this brings back memories. You're 67 years old. And yes, I remember my mother saying, you watch your tone of voice. Why? They're treating, teaching you to treat them with respect. Years ago, uh, there was a show called The West Wing. It was a series that's on Netflix. Um, there was a, one episode that was extremely widely watched and much discussed. Um, it was about, if you're unfamiliar with it, there is a president. His name is Josiah Bartlett. Uh, it's played by Martin Sheen. Uh, he's a, a Roman Catholic, kind of a, a lapsed one. He's the president of the United States. He's fighting multiple sclerosis. And his secretary, who's been such a key figure, really throughout his, all of his developmental life, he actually brings her to the White House. She's killed by a drunk driver. In this episode, uh, they hold her funeral at the National Cathedral. And after the funeral, the president has everybody leave, and he has the doors shut. And then standing in the cavernous National Cathedral, President Bartlett just lashes out at God and says this. She bought her first car and you hit her with a drunk driver. He's shouting, that's supposed to be funny? Have I displeased you, you feckless thug? And then he just launches into this tirade in Latin, and I'll just give you the translation. 
He says, am I really to believe that these are the acts of a loving God, a just God, a wise God? To hell with your punishments. And then in a gesture of contempt, he pulls out a cigarette, lights it, starts smoking it, and then he throws it down to the ground in that cathedral and he crushes it with his foot as just a physical act to show his disdain for the living God. Well, there was a lot of response from this particular episode. Some people were like, whoa, that crossed the line. That sort of blasphemous statements and attitude toward the living God, that's just wrong. But you know that many people actually applauded it. A lot of people thought that, you know what, that is, that's the brutal honesty that we need with God. Finally, we've got someone that's willing to tell God off. All of us who are angry at God. And that's good for him. That's the way it should be. I want you to know that Solomon would violently disagree with that. He would say, listen, your blasphemous words, your, your disrespect to God, you're treating him with irreverence. Friends, that is dangerous ground. Don't you know who you're approaching and speaking with? We're talking the God of the universe. To give you kind of an equivalent between me and you and God, it's kind of like the equivalent of showing your goldfish a map of the city and, help, and hoping that your goldfish understands it. I mean, it's just God is just far greater and far grander. And he's working in ways that you and I don't fully understand. And he doesn't actually have to give an explanation. And oftentimes he doesn't. But he is calling us to treat him with reverence and respect. And when you pray, be humble when you pray. If you think the idea of venting to God is a good idea, and frankly, you can find people that will support that view. Like, just go ahead and tell God off. Tell him how mad you are at him. Let me encourage you to take a look at the book of Job and Job finally does tell God some things and ask him all these questions. You remember how the book of Job ends? God asked Job 70 questions, all of which Job can't answer. You know, like, where were you, by the way, when I created the foundations of the world? Where you? Do you happen to know where the deer calves? Do you happen to know why the ostrich leaves its egg and, and just leaves it all alone? Do you happen to know the answer to these questions? You don't know these things, but I know them. And, and God actually then kind of confronts Job with his attitude. And furthermore, you remember uh, Job had some friends that came and visited him kind of early on. And at first they were great friends because they kept their mouth shut, right? But then, you know, hey, we've been here for a little while. Now we're going to tell you how it is. And they give this classically wrong theology. You know what's going on here, Job, don't you? Good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Job, you must be bad because that's why some bad things are happening to you. And you remember what God does? After he addresses Job, he addresses the, those friends, and he says what they've done is wicked. That is wicked theology. He actually makes them give a sacrifice for it. So, friends, treating God with irreverence is impious, and you want to be really careful on how you approach him. Do not make a cosmic spectacle of your own folly by treating God with disdain. Now, I want you to know it's... It's human to be angry and to be frustrated. And I, I want you to understand that God wants to hear from us. He is a caring father. He loves you and he wants to hear from you. But just remember, he's always more than just a caring father. He's the almighty of the universe and he is to be treated with respect. If you want to know some of the basics of a worshipful life, 
It is to be humble when you pray. And I think we've probably hit a nerve about being angry, being angry at God. If you're angry at God, or uh, maybe you've got a friend that is, if you're asking how in the world do you emerge out of the abyss of anger at the Almighty, I've got two words for you, and you might want to write them down. Hope and, excuse me, humility and faith. Humility and faith. You see, what we need is faith in God with the unanswered questions and the pain in our life. We need faith that God is as he's revealed himself, sovereign, just, good, holy. He's in control of all things. He knows all things, the beginning and the end. We, uh, we need faith that God is going to work all things together for good, his good, to conform us to the image of Jesus. Even if we don't understand it or don't see it, what we need is faith. And in order to have that faith, we need humility toward God. You may find that you are actually asking the wrong questions. Instead of the self-centered, ego-driven questions, ask these kind of questions of eternal value. Like, God... I don't, I don't get the why, but I'm asking you, how are you using this experience in my life or even for your glory? How are you using this to help me grow spiritually, to mature? What am I learning about myself and about you? And you need to understand you've got to be patient. God's not in a hurry. Sometimes the answers come over time and sometimes they don't come at all this side of eternity. But what we need to do is listen more and talk less. Humility and faith. You see, God is interested in our transformation. Not that you just have more information or more experiences. He wants to change you from the inside out. And some of these experiences that literally knock us to our knees or put us on our back. And it is painful. It is hard. It is embarrassing. We have no answer as to why these things are happening. You need to understand that God uses these trials to bring transformation. Depth of heart, conforming us to the image of Jesus, building our faith, preparing us for a future work, and bringing glory to himself in the process. And so just ask him for a greater faith and for the the hard things that you and I have got in our life that we just don't get. Ask the Lord for faith to leave it with him. Humility and faith. You want the basics of a worshipful life? Well, you want to treat God and his word with respect. You want to be humble when you pray. And I want to give you the third. It's found in verses 4 through 7. Keep the promises to God that you make. Look what he says, verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. For he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin. And do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? What he's talking about here is making vows to God. God did not require anybody to make a vow or a promise to him, but he gives you occasions to do so. And you actually see this uh, in the Old Testament. There are people that are making vows. A vow is a, a pledge to do something or a follow a particular behavior or a course of action. And let me give you some of the vows, some of the vows that are given in the Old Testament, like a vow of allegiance, um, a vow uh, like to dedicate even a child, or a vow like an offering, like a free will offering, like I'm going to give this finance or these crops, I'm giving this to you, I vow to do this as an expression of worship 
and of delight in you. And what he's warning about are a couple of sins. One sin he's warning about is kind of making vows and promises to God, but you really don't have any intention to keeping them. In essence, you're lying to God. He's like saying, that is dangerous ground. The other kind of vow is like, you said it, but you're delaying in keeping it. You're thinking maybe how I could get out of this. And so what happens is you find people making these promises to God. Sometimes it's done publicly to kind of like, I'm going to impress God and I'm going to impress others. And I'm going to make this a public vow, a public statement, a public promise. And sometimes it's kind of private, like, Lord, if you do this, I want you to know I'm, I'm going to give $500 to missions or, or whatever. You say things like that. Uh, I've, I've known people that have said in times of great physical illness, they make a promise or a vow. Lord, you, you heal me. You bring me out of this hospital. And I'm going to do this. I want you to know that God takes these things very seriously. To not, he says, listen, don't be making a bunch of rash vows. He says in verse 5, it's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Because one day the messenger of God, now this in the Old Testament could refer to like the priest. It's just some representative of God. Let's say you vowed, you made a promise. I'm going to give a certain amount of finances or money or these resources or I'm going to devote this time. I'm going to do it. And the representative of God comes and then he's like, well, you know, I, I may have said that, but I, I want you to know that, that was a mistake. I didn't realize it was going to be so hard. This, you know, I was, I was awfully young when I did that. I, I really am not in a position to be able to do that. You know, people do that. They perhaps say, Lord, I, I want to covet with you that I'm going to stay morally pure until I get married. And then I'm going to be morally pure in marriage. And then you're like, but, you know, I was, I was younger back then. I, I know better. Or some people... Uh, say that they are, they're going to keep a particular promise, but then they, they fail to do so. I mean, you see this, this idea of making promises and breaking them kind of like really early on. I don't know if kids are still doing this, but I remember kids saying, you know, like when they really wanted to show that they meant business, you know, like cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Do kids say that things like, you guys do that? And then these kids would be breaking their promises. And like, I never saw anyone put a needle in their eye. I was looking but no one ever did that. It's like, well, that was yesterday, right? I'm not going to actually stick a needle in my eye. They're not going to do things like that. I want you to know that if you make a vow or a promise to God, there's no king's X to get you out of it. If you said it and you promised, you should keep it. I remember reading about this business guy, and he was late for a meeting that had serious implications for his career. And he was late because he could not find a parking spot. And it is frustrating when you're driving around and you cannot find a parking spot. And so in total desperation, he pleads to God. He says, Lord, oh, I, I desperately need a parking spot. If you find me a parking spot, I'll tell you what, I'll go to the church for the rest of my life. Every Sunday I'll be there and, and, and I'll even stop drinking. And then he, he opens his eyes. He looks and lo and behold, there is a parking spot right there. And then he goes, oh, hey, never mind, God, just kidding, I found a spot. And he just goes and parks right in there, you know? It's like, okay, God provided, and then what? Oh, we're backing out now because I got what I wanted. I want you to know, you, you don't want to do those things. You don't want to be playing bargaining games with God. If you vowed it, you promised it, you better keep it. If you're like, well, how serious is God about that? Well, why don't you read 
for your enjoyment this, this afternoon, Acts chapter 5. All you have to do is read the first 11 verses. I think it'll drive home the point. You'll meet a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, they were a big part of the early church, and they made all this promise, and it was public, but uh, they held back. And God dealt with them in a pretty significant way. They actually died quickly, all to reinforce the point. Our God is not to be trifled with. And if you vowed it, just like the text says, you should pay it. You know, sometimes people make vows, like in times of spiritual exhilaration, like a vow to celibacy or vow to poverty. I want you to know those things are not in the scripture. You have to make those vows. In fact, I'd probably caution you to not do that based on this text. But it's not wrong to make a vow. In fact, I'll tell you that promises made to God have had a powerful effect even on church history. Uh, there was a troubled young man in Germany uh, about 500 years ago, and he was in the midst of one of those electrical storms, lightning's going everywhere. A lightning bolt came crashing down to a tree that he was next to, and just utterly fearful and kind of in a, where he was at in his life, he made a vow to serve God with the rest of his life. Uh, and indeed he did. I think you might be familiar with the guy's name. His name is Martin Luther. Another vow made by a guy. This guy was a very disreputable character, a slave a trader, ran ships, even a captain of a ship at one time, a very despicable man from what we can tell from human history. In the midst of a storm, he actually makes a vow to God that if God gets him through the storm, he would serve him and, had, and, and ask, God, I will change my life. His name? John Newton. Eventually, he became a pastor. Not like you have to become a pastor or anything like that. He also became a hymn writer. He wrote perhaps the most famous song of all of history, Amazing Grace. But it all got started with a vow. You see, remember this. Promises kept have powerful effects. Promises kept have powerful effects. But you want to avoid what we could call foxhole Christianity. Man, I'm in a jam. Whoa, something bad's going to happen. God, I promise you I'm going to bargain with you. I'm going to do these things. And this text says, no, you, you think it through. If God is impressing upon you to make a vow, then you do it and you keep it. You want to be kind of like David. Psalm 66, verses 13 and 14. David wrote this. I shall come into your house with burnt offerings, and I shall pay you my vows, which my lips uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. So have you made a vow like, well, I vow to spend time with God weekly or daily. I vow to be involved in my church. I vow to be pure sexually, morally. Have you made this vow? You made a promise to an individual. You made a covenant, which we call marriage. And you were public with it. Did you make a vow like stand up at a part of a, a child dedication as a parent Commit to raising your kids for the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you make a vow? I want you to know that God takes it seriously and he intends for us to do the same. And there's something about promises. You see, promises that we make and keep, what they do is they actually start framing the future trajectory of our life and our relationships. Writer and speaker Lewis Smedes has this excellent um, little excerpt I want to read to you about this. He writes this about promises made and keep, kept. Yes, somewhere people still make and keep promises. They choose not to quit when the going gets rough because they promised once to see it through. 
They stick to lost causes. They hold on to a love grown cold. They stay with people who have become pains in the neck. They still dare to make promises and care enough to keep the promises they make. I want to say to you that if you have a ship, you will not desert. If you have people, you will not forsake. If you have causes, you will not abandon. Then you are like God. What a marvelous thing a promise is. When a person makes a promise, she reaches out into an unpredictable future and makes one thing predictable. She will be there even when being there costs her more than she wants to pay. When a person makes a promise, he stretches himself out into circumstances that no one can control and controls at least one thing. He will be there no matter what the circumstances turn out to be. With one simple word of promise, a person creates an island of certainty in a sea of uncertainty. When a person makes a promise, she stakes a claim on her personal freedom and power. And when you make a promise, you take a hand in creating your own future. I want you to think about the vows and the promises you've made to God. It's one of the reasons, like, when we do premarital counseling, we hit this really hard. You, make, you need to make sure you understand what you're vowing before God and each other. This week, I ran across a, a guy, and I've, I've known him for some time, and he, and he told me, as we were kind of standing out there on the street, that he's now, he and his wife are now raising their two granddaughters. I'm like, whoa, you know, what happened? He, he talked about, like, how the parents have, like, just completely dropped out of the scene. They both live in different cities. They just left these two girls, basically. They show up on occasion when it w- works for them and their convenience. Uh, they've had to pick up all the pieces. He said, you know, we've even gone legal on this. We have what's called a, we're now managing conservators of these girls. You see, they made a commitment to love and raise their kids, and it got transferred even to those grandkids. And I'm not sure where those girls would be about, without a grandparents like that who make a vow and they stick with it i remember several years ago uh, there was a guy in our church uh, actually it was a couple this is sad and um, she left him and despite all efforts to try to bring the marriage back together she completely takes off Uh, he's trying to put you know hold these things together and at the same time, about the same time, he, his company has him move, and he had to move for his job. And, and so they had to sell the house, and he asked if I'd pray about the sale of the house. And, of course, I tried to do that, but the house never sold. And it was, it was becoming a hardship, and there was a lot of difficulty and all these issues in his life. And, and so he told me, I, I have made a promise to God that if he sells my house, I'm going to give him a certain percentage, you know, and like all giving's anonymous, and I don't know what anybody gives. And, but he told me that he made a vow. Well, about five weeks later, he was back, and he would he had come in for the closing, and after service, right out there in the foyer, uh, he had tears in his eyes, and he told me, "God's not only sold the house, but you know when I made that promise, he sold it within a week." And he says, "And get this." He sold it to a couple that's a part of Fellowship Bible Church. He's like, God made it crystal clear. And he says, I want you to know I fulfilled my promise. Friends, that's what God intends. You know, when you and I placed our faith in Christ, we made a promise, right? We're going to follow Jesus. If you were baptized, did you know that you 
made a confession of faith and of allegiance. I'm following Christ. He intends for us to do so, to be a person of our word. And so he says in verse 7, For in many dreams and in many words there's emptiness. Just kind of saying things, making motions, got all these dreams, all these words. He says, that's all emptiness. Rather, be real. Fear God. At every key break in this book, including the very end, you find this statement to fear God. It is to show him reverence, worship, and respect. To obey him and to serve him, for he is not a God to be trifled with. You see, a reverential fear of God, you know what it does? It brings a worshipful joy to life. So if you begin to drift, let's say, God's using this text to bring you back, back to the basics. And, you know, for all of us, you know, as we've gone through this, guess what? We probably have broken all of these, right? You know what you and I need for all of our failure? We need the gospel. We need Jesus Christ. We need not only forgiveness for our sins, But you know what else we need? We need strength to do as he's put before us. We can't even have a worshipful life on our own. That's why God has given us Christ and literally places his spirit in our lives so that we can live worship unto him, not just on a Sunday morning, but as a way of life. I was reading George Barna. He's a very famous researcher. And he said this, having devoted more than two decades of my life and all my professional skills of studying and working with ministries of all types, I'm now convinced that the greatest hope for the local church lies in raising godly children. You see, he's exactly right. You see, when the family breaks down, society breaks down. When the family breaks down, the church breaks down. And I just want you to know that for me and my family, Corinne and I, we want our kids to be worshipful. That is my biggest prayer and my hope for my kids, is that they love the Lord Jesus Christ. And they live Christ-centered lives. This Thanksgiving, around our table, I told them exactly that. That's what we're seeking to do. And so, friends, that's what we need. The basics of a worshipful life. To treat God and his word with respect. To be humble when we pray. And to do this. To keep the promises to God that you make. A reverential fear of God brings a worshipful joy to life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this amazing passage. And for... Someone who has come here today who has never truly trusted in Jesus. They need you. In fact, they sense you drawing them to yourself. But they just pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from myself and my sin. And this morning I believe in Christ. I ask, Lord, that you would lead me and that I would follow with joy and obedience. And Lord, for all of us, help us to never tire of the basics, but to be real. And so, Lord, cultivate in us a Christ-centeredness and a God-dependence in such a way that you are glorified and we live in your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.